The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. The night that Jesus was arrested was, I think, the hardest night of Simon Peter's life. I think he would say that if he looked back at the end of his life and you asked him, what was the hardest day or the hardest night of your life? He would, he would zero in on that moment, the moment that he denied Jesus three times. The night began very badly for him, though I don't think he realized how badly it began. When Jesus predicted that they would all fall away on account of him and, and he asserted, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. So clearly full of self-trust, self-confidence. And then it continued in Gethsemane with prayerlessness. He fell asleep. Jesus three times exhorted him to watch and pray that he would not fall into temptation. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, but he didn't listen. And pretty soon he was drawn in through his own ego, his own pride into a net that was far beyond anything he could handle. And three times he denied knowing Jesus. Until finally the rooster crowed. And it says in Luke's gospel, right at that moment Jesus was passing by as he went from one place to another in his series of trials. And he looked right at Simon Peter, looked right at him as the rooster was crowing. I can't imagine what that must have felt like for Peter. Just a look from Jesus. But I know what Peter did. After that look, he ran away from that place of temptation and trial that was far beyond anything he could handle. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, I don't know fully what was going on in Peter's mind after he saw the physical evidence of the empty tomb, the resurrection on the third day. And after he had the encounter with Jesus in the upper room, I would imagine he was filled with joy at at a certain level, but I'm certain he also must have wondered, how is it with me and Jesus? Am I still included? Am Am I forgiven? Is there a future for me? I mean, I see that there's great joy here in the resurrection, but what about me? Am I out now, now that I've sinned? And so there was some work that Jesus had to do on Peter to restore him. And you know what I'm talking about there in John 21. Three times Jesus looks at him with those same eyes that he looked at him that night. Said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times And it says in the text, Peter was hurt because he asked, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Well, as we come this morning to Revelation 2, 1 through 7, I feel the same thing could happen for us today, needs to happen for many of us today. To some degree, as we sit under this text, Revelation 2, 1 through 7, we are going to sit under the searching gaze of Jesus, whose eyes are like blazing fire, I am he who searches hearts and minds, said Jesus. And by this text, he's going to ask each one of us the same question that he asked Peter by the Sea of Galilee. Do you love me? And I don't think it's enough for each one of us to say, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. That's not enough, actually. We actually have to to ask a deeper question. Do I actually love Christ more now than I did a year ago? What's the direction of my heart right now? What's the direction of my walk with with Christ? Do I love him more now than I did a year ago? Is my love for Christ growing and developing? Or is it stagnating or contracting? Is it shrinking under the constant onslaught of the world, the flesh, and the devil? And if my love for Christ is shrinking, if my love for Christ is dying, what can I do to be renewed to a healthy, vibrant, vigorous walk with Christ? Again, what can happen? And beyond that, you might say, how can I know? How can I know what's happening in my heart toward Christ? 
So in this probing text, we got seven verses from Revelation 2. I have prayed that Christ would search me and know me and know my heart and see if there's any wicked way in me. And I think you ought to pray, each one of you, for yourselves the same thing. And ask this question, have I forsaken my first love or is my love for Christ growing and developing? So we have to do a little review to understand what's going on here in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 1, we saw last week, the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, of his majestic person, his glorious, powerful person, and his active, vibrant ministry. And we have these words spoken of Christ in Revelation 1, 14 through 16, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. That's a vision of the resurrected Christ. And he's dressed like a priest with a robe down to his feet and a golden sash around his chest. And he is walking through these seven golden lampstands. He's walking through them in the midst of them. And we're told at the end of the chapter, the seven stars that he has in his right hand are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we have a prophetic vision of the resurrected, glorified, sovereign Christ actively ministering in the midst of seven churches. A priestly ministry of his constant vigilance over local churches, I think, all over the world, throughout all of human history, all redemptive history. So let's get some historical context. This Revelation 2 and 3 are beginning uh, this phase of the study of the book of Revelation. These are the letters to the seven churches. Christ's letters to the seven churches in the province of Asia, Asia Minor. So that would be modern-day Turkey. These were real churches, uh, local churches. Each had their own challenges and their own issues, their own strengths, weaknesses... So they were specific messages for that time, but they're also, I think, timeless lessons for all churches in all eras of church history. Each of the seven letters ends with the same exhortation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So what that means is we need to carefully study each of these seven letters and draw in the meaning and try to understand what the Lord would say to us. The composite picture of these seven churches, the strengths and weaknesses of these churches, and especially of what Christ thinks about them, what his attitude is toward them, is vital for us as a local church, for our own ongoing health. Here at First Baptist Church, Durham, North Carolina, here in the second decade of the 21st century, what is Jesus saying to us? What do we need to hear in all of these seven churches? Now these The timelessness of these lessons comes from a number of aspects of biblical truth. First, the timeless nature, the unchanging nature of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 13, he never changes. The timelessness of these lessons also comes from the unchanging mission that he's given to every local church. We could just look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where Jesus said, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So we have discerned there an internal journey of holiness resulting in an ongoing pattern of obedience to all of his commands. Sanctification, discipleship, you could say that. Holiness, obedience to his commands. And that flows out in an external journey of evangelism and missions in which we are making disciples in our own Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. That's timeless. It's not going to change. Those two tasks, those two journeys are still in front of us and they are in front of every local church all over the world. Thirdly, the timelessness of these lessons comes from the unchanging nature of Satan's attacks on local churches. It's the same in every generation. He does the same things attacking local churches in every generation. Satan attacks the church physically. 
through vicious, persecuting humans, especially evil governments like Caesar and Rome in John's day and whatever the persecuting governments are in our day. But not just governments, individuals can persecute as well. Satan attacks the church mentally, luring it toward false doctrine, false teaching, heresies, human philosophies, and worldviews. And Satan attacks the church morally by luring individuals into sin, into worldliness through lusts. So he attacks the church physically through persecution, mentally through false doctrine, and morally through sin. It's the same in every generation and it's the same all over the world. So around the world, some brothers and sisters of ours are being viciously persecuted far more than we are. And we'll talk about that more next week. In which they are being incarcerated for their faith or they're unable to hold down a job because they're Christians. Or they're unable to buy and sell in that community, etc. They're being persecuted. All over the world... Churches have to stand firm against false doctrine. That happens no matter where you are. There's always false teachers that are coming in. And all over the world, we are drawn away from holiness to lust. And this is going on all the time. So these are timeless lessons. The book of Revelation then is a timeless call to Christians in every generation, in every location, to live openly and courageously for Jesus Christ, bowing our knee to Christ as Lord and Savior. Putting sin to death by the Spirit. Testifying to the lost that Jesus is the only Savior that there is. Standing courageously in the face of whatever reactions come to that testimony. That's what we're called to do. Now the Apostle John who wrote these uh, letters was in exile in Patmos there at the end of the first century AD. The Roman Empire was just beginning to come into the zenith of its power at that point. It was going to become even more powerful than it was. The emperor Nero had begun overt persecutions of Christians, but they were sporadic and they were limited mostly to right around Rome. But his successor, Domitian, was extending this persecution as a worldwide policy throughout the Roman Empire. So the battle between Christ and Caesar was now joined by the time Revelation was being written. Both Caesar and Christ are jealous kings that yearn for the full affection and loyalty of their subjects. There could be no compromise between Caesar and Christ. Now the whole book of Revelation must be seen in light of that conflict. That there is an escalating, organized persecution of the church. And these letters to the seven churches make these very same issues plain to us. All seven of these letters are relevant for us. We need to listen to what the Spirit says to all seven of the churches. But we're going to begin this morning by looking at the message to the church at Ephesus. Now within this we see Christ's constant vigilance as a high priest. It's absolutely essential to us. We have the image of Jesus walking carefully and thoughtfully in the midst of these seven golden lampstands. It's a very powerful image for me. Reaching out his hand. Working on trimming the wick or, or, or maybe uh, pouring some more oil into the lamp or doing something, making the fire burn brighter and hotter. Now at the end of the book of Revelation, we're going to have very clearly the image of the single universal church as the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem. There is one church in the end, the universal church, the body of Christ. But then we've got this plural word here, churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We wouldn't imagine that Jesus has multiple brides. But rather the churches are local assemblies of Christians that gather together. All of them, hopefully, the individual members, part of the universal church, the spiritual church through faith in Christ. Now the local churches feed the new Jerusalem. They feed the heavenly Zion, the heavenly church. As they are healthy and doing the ministries God's called them to do. They are feeder systems. All local churches are temporary because there won't be any local churches in heaven. But they are vital to the work of the building of the worldwide church of Jesus Christ. Now, local churches get stronger or weaker depending on how they respond to the three assaults that Satan's constantly doing. Assaults on the body, assaults on the mind, assaults on the heart, the morals. We also learn from this first of the seven uh, letters to the churches... That local churches can be removed. The lampstand can be taken out. 
And it's done as an act of judgment. We're going to talk more about that. Now Christ ministers constantly to these lampstands. And he's, he's seeking to make them burn brighter and hotter in their locality. He tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. And he lights a lamp and puts it up on its stand. And he's yearning for the, these local churches to burn for the glory of God. Now individual Christians who are genuinely born again, who are justified by faith in Christ, can never lose their salvation. I believe that's absolutely clearly taught. But local churches can be removed and are removed. And we need to understand why that happens. And we need to be concerned about that. And be zealous that that not happen to this church in our generation. So I'm personally jealous for First Baptist Durham. That we would be as healthy and vibrant and vital a church as we possibly can be. So let's dig in and try to understand this letter to the church at Ephesus. Now the city of Ephesus was the most prominent city in Asia Minor. It really was the capital of that province of Asia Minor. Effectively the capital since the governor resided there. Its population in New Testament times was somewhere between a quarter and a half million people. It was famous throughout the world for the temple of Artemis of the Ephesians, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And because of its architectural grandeur and all of the, the, um, the pagan worship that went on there, people came from all over the, that part of the world to Ephesus to uh, worship Artemis of the Ephesians. John MacArthur said this about Ephesus and the temple. <clears throat> the temple was attended by numerous priests, eunuchs and slaves. Thousands of priestesses who were little more than ritual prostitutes, played a major role in the worship of Artemis. <clears throat> the temple grounds were a chaotic cacophony of priests, prostitutes, bankers, criminals, musicians, dancers, frenzied, hysterical worshipers. One ancient Greek philosopher said, Heraclitus said, he was called the weeping philosopher because he declared that no one could live in Ephesus and not weep over its immorality. So that's a pagan philosopher and that's how bad that city was. But what about the gospel there in Ephesus? Well, perhaps no Gentile city or Gentile church is as well known in the pages of the New Testament or has as much coverage in the New Testament as this church in Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila, Jews who were expelled from Rome under an earlier persecution, came to Ephesus... And they began to share the gospel there. Soon they were joined by a very zealous man named Apollos. Who understood some aspects. But they brought him more in tune with what had happened through Jesus. And so through these individuals. A foundation was begun to be laid. Which Paul then completed the foundation by his ministry. Now the apostle Paul had been thwarted. In an earlier attempt to get down to that part of Asia Minor. It says in Acts 16 on his second missionary journey. That he couldn't go there because the Holy Spirit would not permit him to go there. So he was blocked in. For some reason the Spirit wanted him to go across to Philippi and begin over there in Macedonia. And so he did. However, on, at the end of his second missionary journey, he went by very quickly and saw the strategic value of Ephesus. So that was the first place he went on his third missionary journey. And he went there and helped to build the church there. It's quite possible that the other six churches were planted out of the ministry that Paul did for two and a half or more years. It says that everyone throughout the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord from that church in Ephesus. So we're going to come back to that idea again and again. Now Paul did amazing miracles there in Ephesus. Driving back the power of Satan. It's incredible the things he was doing. Probably one of my favorite stories about this was about the seven sons of Sceva. You remember these guys? These are Jews that went around trying to drive out evil spirits. So they heard about what Paul was doing and they said in the name of this Jesus whom Paul is preaching said to a demon in a man I command you we command you to come out and the demon answered Jesus I know and I know about Paul but who are you and then the demon possessed man beat up these seven men stripped them naked and they ran out screaming and bleeding and the name of Jesus was held in great honor and so also the apostle Paul in his preaching. As a matter of fact, the effect of the preaching there was so powerful in driving back satanic dark, darkness that people who had these very expensive occultic scrolls came and burdened them and they were worth 50,000 days laborers' wages. Huge amount of money was burned. So the gospel took solid root there in Ephesus. Many people came to faith in Christ. As a matter of fact, so many people were turning away from paganism that uh, some makers of silver shrines replicas of the temple were losing business 
And they got angry and started making charges against uh, Paul and against the gospel. And that started this great riot in Ephesus that went on for two hours. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. It's that, that mob mentality and they're chanting for two hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Paul in Acts 20 gave a farewell address to the Ephesian elders. One of the great displays of pastoral ministry. You want to understand, if you are interested in vocational ministry, Acts 20 may be a home base for studying elements of a healthy pastoral ministry. And he did that with these elders of the church at Ephesus. So they were thoroughly and well trained. Obviously, after he left, he went and never returned there again. He wrote the, the epistle to the Ephesians, which we just got done going through over the last number, year and a half or so before Isaiah. And it's just an incredible statement of Christian doctrine. Also, it seems that his protege, his, his um, trainee, Timothy, his son in the faith, went there and ministered there. And so First and Timothy also were written in the... First and Second Timothy, sorry, were written in uh, to the context there in Ephesus. Now, as the years went on, the church in Ephesus continued to be the most influential church in that region of the world. And according to church tradition, we don't have this in the Bible, but the Apostle John settled in there after Timothy and continued to pastor that church. Now, John is in exile in Patmos off the coast of Asia Minor there for the ministry of the Word of God. Now, the letter begins in verse 1 with Christ's self-identification. He says, to the, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, we don't know exactly what this means. The word angel means messenger. I think it's highly unlikely that Jesus would tell John, a human being in a certain place, to write a letter to an angel. I would think that would be mostly handled in-house between God and the angels. I don't think he needs to go to John first and then get a letter. Usually it's the other way around where it goes God, angel, then apostle or prophet. So I think we could rule that out. So the messengers really probably are likely the pastors in those churches. Some have said it may also be the kind of... Uh, dominating spirit of the church as it seeks to be a witness to that community. That's a little hard to understand, but I think we could at least say um, the elders of the, or pastors of those churches. So write to these pastors, write to this pastor of the church in Ephesus, write. And then he identifies himself as, as the, the one who holds in his right hand the seven stars and who's walking through the seven golden lampstands. And so the holding of the seven stars in the right hand represents Christ's ownership of and authority over those seven churches and his protection of them. No one can snatch them out of Jesus' hand. So he's got them in his hand, he's protecting them, but he's in charge of them. And his moving through the seven golden lampstands shows his active, intelligent, consistent priestly ministry to the local churches. So that's how he identifies himself. And he says, these are the words of, this is how he's ministering to them, by speaking words. It's by the word of God. That Christ continues through the Spirit to minister to local churches. And then he commends the church at Ephesus. Look at verse 2 and 3. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. And that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persecuted and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So Christ always begins with these words, I know. I know you. Usually I know your deeds. By their fruit you will know them. So he begins with this, this comprehensive, perfect, detailed knowledge of each of these seven churches. And he doesn't use a different Greek word like, I am getting to know you. Or I'm learning you. No, I know you. I know everything about you. And I, I know your deeds, but I also, and it's going to be relevant to this letter, I know the heart behind your deeds as well. I know everything about you completely. And that's very comforting to us, isn't it? But it's also unsettling too. We who are Roman 7 Christians with sin nature in us. It's hard to be searched by someone whose eyes are like blazing fire. He says, I know you. I know your deeds. And then he commends them three categories, three virtues. He talks about their deeds. He commends their deeds, their endurance, and their commitment to orthodox doctrine, to right doctrine. So the first commendation is their deeds. The Greek word here is labor. They are hard workers. They don't dabble at Christian labor. They work hard at it. They're energetic. They're not lazy. So the church was really a beehive of activity. There's a lot going on. We know from the book of James, faith without works is dead. But this was the church who was energetically doing good works. Now we don't know what deeds he's commending. 
But you can imagine all of the deeds of a healthy church life. So the, the preaching and teaching ministries were flowing. Spiritual gift ministries were flowing. People with gifts of administration. Gifts of help and service were flowing. Women were making perhaps meals for those that were shut-ins. Or they were making um, you know, articles of clothing for the, for the poor perhaps. There were others that were going out evangelizing. There were lots of th- different things, deeds going on in the life of the church. Secondly, he commends their endurance. That they didn't grow weary. They didn't give up. Christian life is like a marathon race. And they weren't getting tired of it. They weren't growing weary. They didn't give up. Especially the implication here is persecution. We don't know what kinds of persecutions there would have been there in Ephesus. But we already saw the riot for two hours. Paul, they said, if he had gone in there, they probably would have killed him. That's the level of hatred of Demetrius and the silver workers and the shrine makers for Christianity. They were right there in the community after Paul left. So we can imagine the persecution. Maybe it was socioeconomic. Maybe they couldn't buy or sell or hold down jobs. We don't know. But they, they didn't give up. They didn't give up their profession of faith in Christ. They persevered. They endured. Thirdly, their orthodox doctrine. This was the church that received the book of Ephesians. I mean, think about that. that just the, the, the depth of doctrine that Paul laid on them. And the way he trained them in the, in the doctrines of the faith. Powerful. And they had some excellent elders that Paul had trained as we saw in Acts 20. And within Acts 20, verses 29 through 31, he said this to the Ephesian elders. He said this, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Listen to this. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. You see how that fits to the very commendation he gives here. They were vigilant. Even from your own number. We're not, just because you're one of us, we're going to listen to what you're saying. Like the Bereans, we're going to search the scriptures to be sure that what you're saying is biblical and true. So they were able to test those who claimed to be apostles but were not. And they were able to find them false. That, that takes a lot of, of doctrinal knowledge and precision and discernment. They were a discerning church. And they were committed to it. So, in summary, this was a church that was hardworking. They were persevering and they were committed to... to Solid doctrine. Even they opposed later in the, in the letter the teaching of the, the Nicolaitans, which were like um, libertarians. They were teaching that you could live, uh, you know, do whatever kind of immorality you want, Christ would forgive you, etc. We'll talk more about them in future weeks. But they, they hated the works of the Nicolaitans. They were hardworking, they were persevering, they, they loved right doctrine and stood up. So what's wrong? What's wrong? Well, he says in verse 4, what's wrong? Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Just just stop and think of the weightiness of Jesus saying something like that to you. That's what I want you to do. Just stop and say, to hear Jesus say to us as a church or even to us as individuals, I have this against you. Just feel the weight of that. That should matter to us. I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Now what does that mean? They had willfully. So forsaken is not an accident now. They had willfully and probably gradually. Little by little. Turned away from their first love. Now we don't know exactly what that means. True Christianity results in heartfelt spirit led obedience to the two great commandments. Vertically. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And then horizontally, to love your neighbor as yourself. So genuine Christianity builds obedience to those two great commandments in us. It could be either one of those. We don't know. But I'm going to focus on the vertical aspect, specifically love for Christ. I'm going to zero in on that. And I think the idea is... The love you had at first, your first love, not so much first priority, but the love you had at first when you were first converted. Remember how it was when you were first converted? Remember how excited you were at being a Christian? Remember what that was like at the start? You've forsaken that. You've turned away. And where there is no love, there is no life. So little by little, through willful choices they had made, they had allowed their hearts to grow hard. They had allowed their, their love to grow cold. I don't know what caused it to happen. We're not told. 
I think it's reasonable to assume that it was love for the world at a certain level. The world is very alluring. It's just singing that siren song all the time to come off the path of fervency in Christ. Maybe it had to do with persecutions and they were weary of that. But it said they, they hadn't given up. So I don't really know. I don't think it was overt immorality or else he would have called them on that like he does the later churches. I don't think that's the problem. So what would it have been? Well, I think they were just cranking it out. They become like cold, grimly ascetic, determined to do the right things but not getting any joy out of it. Like in Galatians said, what's happened to all your joy? What happened to that joy you had in Christ? So they didn't have any heart or joy behind them. Maybe some other things, you know, we're going to be seeking something to make us happy. You're not going to say, oh, I'm just going to be a grim ascetic and I'm going to be miserable and unhappy all the time. We don't tend to do that. So maybe they're going after amoral pleasures, food, entertainments, amoral entertainments, worldly things that were not corrupt or pervert or immoral. It's, again, Paul, I mean, Jesus would have told them about that. But little by little, whatever the reason, their hearts had grown cold. Now, in the Old Testament, God again and again used this image of marriage between him and his people. There's that, that, that image of God and his bride Israel. And God has this affection like a spouse for his people. And so, in, like in Jeremiah 2, it says something very similar in Jeremiah 2 to Israel, verse 2 and 3. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you followed me in the desert. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruit of his harvest. I remember. So God's saying, I remember what you were like back then. I remember the devotion of your youth. So many of the prophets in the Old Testament picked up on this image of God's love relationship with his bride Israel. And her wandering ways, going after other lovers, going after false uh, gods, idols. In the New Testament, that whole image is brought over to the image of Christ and his bride, the church. And so Christ desires to have the sincere and pure, wholehearted devotion of his bride. Paul says to the church at, at Corinth, I'm afraid that like Eve, like the serpent tempted Eve, your hearts might be drawn away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So there's that love relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. He desires his bride to delight in him, to love him with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength. But over the years, it seemed, this church at Ephesus, their original ardor for Christ had cooled. Their hearts had grown cold and distant. And it was not an accident. They had made willful choices. They had forsaken their first love. And all the work and the doctrine just become drudgery without love for Christ. Do you remember the story about um, Jacob and Rachel? Remember that? And uh, he saw Rachel... And, you know, he was in the, I don't know how to say it, the market for a wife. It was the right time for him. And uh, here she comes. There's Rachel. And it, was, I, it just seems like a biblical example of love at first sight. I mean, he went and gave her a cousinly kiss on the cheek. But I'm thinking there was probably more than that going on. You remember? Well, it turns out Rachel has quite a father. His name is Laban. What a scoundrel. And he contracts seven years of labor out of this guy. Seven years he's got to work. But I love this. It says in Genesis 29, 20. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. But they seem like only a few days because of his love for her. I'm, I'm guessing that the church at Ephesus wasn't feeling that way about their service to Christ anymore. It seemed like just a few days. I just love Jesus so much I just want to serve him. It was becoming a burden instead. It's hard. It's like, oh, you have to do that again? Another outreach, you know, another offering, another prayer meeting. It just feels like a burden because the love isn't there anymore. Even the worship, you know, Jesus said in Matthew 15, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. It's just cold, it's distant. You're singing the songs, you're there, but you're not. I think Jesus wants to speak to us. Like in Hosea 2, you know how Hosea had to marry this prostitute symbolizing Israel's wandering ways. Her name was Gomer. But then, you know, God just speaks through all of that. Hosea 2, 14 through 16 says, Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and I will speak to her heart. I'll speak to her heart. I'll speak tenderly to her. And there she will sing. 
as in the days of her youth. As in the day that she came up out of Egypt. She's going to sing like that again. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And I will betroth you to myself forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. Don't you feel that that's what Jesus wants to say to his bride, the church? I want to bring you out just like it was when I first brought you up out of bondage to sin. And I'm going to make you sing again like you used to. Augustine said in his confessions, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and the heart of man is restless until it finds its rest in you. But you know, the saddest part about our Christian lives is we don't stop being restless. Have you noticed that? Just like in the song we sang, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I think we sang that like three times. (laughs) But I'm glad. I mean, I think it was good that the worship team did that because it's just like, that's so true, isn't it? Don't you feel that proneness that you have to wander? It's like, what is wrong with me? Why would it be that I love Jesus less now than I did a year ago? I should love him more. I've learned more. Jonathan Edwards in his treatise on religious affection said, True religion consists very much in the affections. I've understood this. Edwards said the heart is able to analyze and understand something. Plus be attracted to or repulsed from that thing to a greater or less degree. That's what the heart does. So you know and understand and then you love or like. You dislike Or hate. That's what the heart does. And you're made that way. First and foremost you're made to love God. Above anything else. To have a heart attracted after God. There's a heart attraction. That's what love is. So we use the word love. That simple four letter word love. To talk about a wide range of experiences. It's really almost weird. Like I love a beautiful sunset. Or I love snow in March. Or, you know, I love the Durham Bulls. Staying away from college basketball for the illustration. Just staying away from that. I love the Durham Bulls. Um, I love chocolate ice cream. I love my wife. I love Jesus. I mean, the same word for all of that. So what is the commonality? It's heart attraction. Like a magnet, I'm pulled toward those things. That's what it is. To a greater or less degree, said Edwards. All right, maximum attraction must be to God. And the point of our faith is to give us a heart of love that we didn't have before. We loved God when we didn't. We used to hate him. Now we love him. But it's not static. It's dynamic. You love more, you love less. That's what's going on here. So Christ gives this command to them. Christ will not leave any local church wandering aimlessly in a desert of lovelessness, churning out works and right doctrine from a cold heart. This is appalling to him. He will not allow it to continue. So he presses in like a good physician and gives this threefold prescription, this threefold command. Remember, repent, and resume effectively. Look at verse 5. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So start with this. Remember the height or the place from which you have fallen. This is the image of backsliding. Our our growth in love for Christ is pictured almost like climbing a mountain. Going higher and higher. Do you remember some months ago, if not a year or more ago, when I was preaching through Ephesians. And we got to that beautiful section, Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. The Apostle Paul was talking about praying for the Ephesian Christians. Remember? And and he he said... I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And that you would know that love that surpasses knowledge. That you would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Remember those words? Written to this exact same church. My guess is that they had had some experiences like that, elevating experiences. Maybe not caught up to the third heaven, but they'd gotten above that cloud cover, that fog level, and they'd seen how much Jesus loved them. The infinite dimensions of Jesus' love for them at the cross in the empty tomb. They'd seen it, and their hearts were moved by that. Remember? Remember how that was? Now look at you. You slip back. You're, you're back down below the fog cover now. And you don't seem to know how wide and long and high and deep anymore. You're certainly not filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. 
So remember, it's like we're climbing higher and higher in our knowledge and our sense and feeling of the love of Christ for us. Remember the height from which you have fallen. See how it used to be. Remember what it was like when Jesus' love first pierced through your heart. Remember that. Remember when for the first time you surveyed the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. And you saw the attributes of God there. You saw the love of God displayed in the cross. It wasn't an ugly, disgusting picture of a bloody man tortured to death. It was now a picture of God's love for you. Remember how that was, what that was like. Remember when you first really felt yourself to be the prodigal son. And your father came back and hugged you and welcomed you back and forgave all your sins. And put a ring on your finger and shoes on your feet and a robe around you. And he welcomed you into a feast. Remember what that was like. What that actually felt like. To have your father love you like that. That's the height from which you've fallen. Remember what that was like. Secondly, repent. Feel the pain of the fall. Cry out against yourself. Turn in your mind on your own situation. Turn and become alarmed and become awakened and become zealous about this. The coldness of affections for Christ is a great sin. It's not a small sin. It's actually a great sin. To become bored with Jesus is a big deal. It's not a small thing. To become cold and lifeless toward the Bible. To have very little attraction toward the reading of Scripture is a big deal. To be distant from God and from Christ in corporate worship and not really enjoy singing any of the songs. That's a big deal. So prod yourself with God's word. Provoke your heart. Charge yourself with sin. Turn from your present course. Do a U-turn. That's what repentance is. Renew your mind by God's word. And see your present spiritual state the way Christ does. And repent. Take responsibility for where you're at in your walk with Christ. It's your fault. And you don't have to wait. You can do it right away. That's the beauty of sanctification. If at any moment you're convicted of sin, repent and immediately do the right things. You don't have to wait. You don't have to have a warm-up period. You just go right into the third, which is renew or resume the things you did at first. There's no waiting. This is a most urgent matter. Now, they were a busy, hard-working church. So apparently the works he's talking about here aren't about all that. There were some works of love that they used to do. That's what we're talking about. Works of affection. Works of heart attraction to Christ. What, I mean, what did you do when you wanted to tell Jesus that you loved him early on? What did you do? How did you express it? I mean, I, I like to be out in nature. I like to go out and, and for long walks in the woods or see, see uh, you know, scenery. I, I, that does, and, and just pray and thank God for the things he's done. I like to do that. Maybe you did that too. I don't know. Maybe you like to go to the ocean. Or maybe you just stayed at home and you spent a, a long evening just studying God's word. And you're there with like three or four different colored markers. And you're really into it, right? And you're like writing notes feverishly. And, and you just loved it. You were just discovering new things in God's word back then. Or, or you might sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs where no one could hear you. And it's probably a good thing too. But you love to sing. And you just enjoyed doing that. I remember three or four years into my Christian life, I went to a Christian bookstore and I bought my first hymnal. And I just, I held it in my hand this morning as my study. I was going to bring it into the pulpit here, but I'm not big on show and tell. But I, I just had this thing in my hand. And I, I went through, and by then, three or four years into my Christian walk, I knew a lot of hymns in there. And I just sang them. I was at a picnic table out in a park. There weren't any people there when I started, but then they started to come. And that's, I was tested at that moment. Will I keep singing? But I didn't care about them. I just was enjoying singing. Just enjoyed it. Or I used to go out on Sunday afternoons when I was a single man and we didn't have an evening service at that small church in Topsfield. And I used to go out and find a tree and sit under it and eat a sandwich and I would read Christian books or the Bible or I'd memorize scripture and I'd just be there for hours. I just loved doing that. That's what I used to do. What did you used to do? What are the works you used to do when you wanted to express your love for Christ? Well, resume those actions again, whatever it is. Remember, Repent and resume. The world has a deadening effect on us. You go after some habit. You think it's going to make you happy. You get increasingly addicted to it. And little by little, you don't want to do anything but that. And it dims your joy and delight in everything else, including Jesus. 
And that's what the world does. Ecclesiastes 1.8 says, all things are wearisome more than one can say. That's life apart from Jesus. That's what happens. We get bored with things. Remember, repent, and resume. Well, what if we don't? If not, what? What then? Well, look at verse 5 again. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. This is a grave threat. Christ will not have a loveless, hard-working orthodoxy. He's not going to have a religious machine running to no purpose. The thing we need to realize as a local church, he doesn't need us at all. We need him. He doesn't need us to build the universal church. All local churches are temporary. He can and does remove lampstands. So if a church has forsaken its first love and is called on in this text to repent and they don't, the lampstand will be removed. Alexander Strauch wrote a book about this and it's one of the most striking titles I've ever read. Just, Just about these verses. Revelation 2, 1 through 7. It was called Repent or Die. So it's speaking to a church. If you don't, I'm going to take you out and the church will be dead. It will be gone. Now, I'm not talking about individual Christians losing their salvation. That's a different matter. Warnings are given to individual Christians that we should heed those warnings. And if you're genuinely born again, you will. And you will repent and turn and do the things you did at first. But he's talking to whole churches. And we have seen right even in this community, churches that used to be flourishing, shut down. They don't exist anymore. They're done. Or others that are in the process of that. They're heading toward extinction. It does happen. But to the overcomers, look at verse 7. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Each of these letters ends with the same words. To him who overcomes, sweet promises. If you listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, if you repent and do what he's telling you to do, if you overcome, I love that word, We are to be more than conquerors. We have severe challenges we need to overcome. If you do overcome by faith in Christ, by the Spirit, if you remember, repent, and resume, if you have an ear and you listen to what the Spirit says to the church, this is what he says, I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Isn't that powerful? Think about that. Remember, there were two trees in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And when Adam and Eve fell at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the way was blocked or closed to the tree of life. And there was a cherub with a flaming sword put in the way, flashing back and forth, saying, you cannot go there. You cannot eat from that tree. But now, Jesus is saying, if you remember, repent, resume, if you overcome, I will give you the privilege of eating from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's a metaphor for salvation. You'll live forever. In heaven. Revelation 22.2 at the end of this book. It says on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Isn't that beautiful? Feed. Feed. I mean you can, you can get the benefits right now. You can already start feeling spiritual nourishment flowing through your, your soul. If you'll remember, repent, and resume the works you did at first. You're going to start getting stronger. But that's not it. In the end, you get to be in the paradise of God eating. 22, Revelation 22, 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to eat, right to the tree of life, and may go through the gates into the city. Well, I've been weaving applications all through this sermon, so we've done most of it already. I just want to say a couple things. First to non-Christians and then to Christians. To non-Christians, I just say this. You've been overhearing a conversation, really, between Jesus and his church. That's what's happened here. God brought you here. We are so glad you're here. And he brought you here to listen to this conversation. But if you're not yet a Christian, he wants you to know you're on the outside. You're on the outside. But he's inviting you to come in. He's inviting you. He's saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Open the door and I will come in and I'll eat with you and you with me. He's inviting you. To come to him. Come to me all you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. That's the invitation here. And you will immediately come into a love love relationship with Christ. That will last all eternity. That's what I say to you. Trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And know the salvation only he can give. Now to you who are Christians. I've been looking in the mirror today. Revelation 2. 1 through 7. How is your love relationship with Christ? Do you love Jesus more now than you did a year ago? 
Is it growing? Is it expanding? Is it developing? Is it warmer, stronger, hotter? If not, why? What's going on? Are you in sin? Is there some kind of pattern of sin that's drawing your spiritual strength away? Is there some habit of worldliness? It might not be overt sin, but just things you're addicted to in the world that are sapping your strength and they're causing you not to give as much time to prayer or Bible reading or other things. What is your worship life like? Do you like to pray and sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs on your own? Do you like to tell Jesus, thank you for dying for me? Do you have a sense of the ministry of the Spirit poured into your heart? The love of God poured into your heart? If not, then just these three steps. They've been very helpful for me. Remember, repent, resume. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the things that we've learned today in your word. My desire, O Lord, is that each one of us would love Christ more fervently a year from now than we do now. I pray that those things that are are sucking strength out of us, that you would prune them from our lives, O Lord, that we would cut off the right hand, gout out the right eye, whatever it takes, so that we can have a more sincere and pure devotion, a more fervent devotion to Christ. I pray, O Lord, give us power by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Help us to love you more and serve you better. Help us to be willing to obey your commands. You said, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. Help us to be more obedient by the Spirit. And if we are, you'll reveal more and more of yourself to us. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.